the thing with Spielberg that keeps us coming back to him and that keeps him at the forefront of American cinema when so many of the other people that he really started out working alongside have, if not fallen to the wayside, at least not maintained that like primacy of voice in the same way he has, is that Spielberg is unusually good at taking an idea that you think you understand and finding a way into it that is surprising and compelling. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, the pulse of theatrical exhibition since 1920. Joined this week by Box Office Pro's chief analyst, Sean Robbins, who will be going over the preview of the movies that are coming out this Thanksgiving, including some notable expansions and holdovers hitting the market. And in our feature segment this week, we'll be having Russ Fisher, the editorial director of the Box Office Studios, uh, Part of our company that provides editorial services for movie theaters, Russ and I will be going over the career filmography of Steven Spielberg as his new film, The Fable Mints, is expanding to a theater near you this Thanksgiving holiday weekend. But before that, news to go over, Sean, as much as we can keep up with news, because of course, there is a lot of World Cup that we won't be getting into in this podcast, at least. Obviously, the World Cup is serious matters. We don't go into, you know, strong news, too much news outside of the entertainment industry here. (laughs) But we do talk about movies that are coming out and executive shakeups. And we've got both of those this week, Sean, before we get into the executive shakeup at Disney Let's talk movies. This is one of the most important holiday weekends at the U.S. box office, Thanksgiving. But it's going to be a little bit of a weird one. It's fair to say we've had non-traditional Thanksgiving box office weekends, really, since the pandemic started. How can we compare this coming weekend to what's come out in the last couple of years since COVID-19? Yeah, this is another instance where we're looking to get some of that momentum going into the heart of holiday season, which has always been very crucial, very lucrative for the industry. And I think we see some improvements over last year, which itself had some bright spots. House of Gucci was a solid story around that holiday this time of year. I think this year, Black Panther is really carrying a lot of that weight, but we have a handful of movies this week that you know may not reach those higher levels, but in the aggregate, they can at least get things rolling as we head into December. So let's talk about some of those movies. We've got a couple of expansions here. Steven Spielberg's The Fablements, and we'll be talking about that movie a little bit in depth in relation to Spielberg's filmography as a whole with Russ Fisher later on in this episode. What can we expect from The Fablements? Because from the platform release a couple of weekends ago, there seems to be a lot of demand for this movie on a per screen average basis. Right. And I think the fact that it is a Steven Spielberg movie obviously is the main reason we're talking about this right now, but coming at a time expanding to 600 locations. So just on the very minimal end to be considered a wide release, I wouldn't expect it to be ranking significantly high on the box office chart just because of that low location count. But this is going to be another of those tests. And we've seen several prestige films open in a very consistent range in recent weeks and those low single digit millions when they go into wide release close to a thousand theaters. This isn't quite up there yet, but over a holiday and the Spielberg name and a lot of buzz, a lot of 
early Oscar talk already. The hope is that this will be one of those movies that can connect with audiences in those markets where it's playing. But the takeaway we have to already go into this with is it is a movie about Hollywood. And we know those are very tough sales, whether Spielberg is involved or not. Right. It's always difficult. I think that's going to be the case with uh, Babylon from uh, Damien Chazelle coming out a little bit after Christmas here in the United States, a film that's going to have to do a little bit of legwork to connect with audiences. I agree with you. I think the jury is out on how the Fablements is going to be able to perform outside of major cities here in the U.S. But talking about a more, let's say, multiplex-friendly slate here with the new openers, we've got two titles here, Strange World from Disney and Devotion. Who's releasing Devotion? That would be Sony. It's from Sony. Interesting strategy from Sony. This is a movie about uh, U.S. Air Force, Army airplanes. It's an art, It's a war guys movie with one of the guys that was in the last U.S. airplane movie that came out this year. Any hope that we can see from Devotion other than it kind of looks like Top Gun Maverick? You know, I think the fact that it's had some marketing placement with the Black Panther recently and some trailer ads running in front of it. So I think that'll help draw out some of the audiences that would, if you're looking for an aerial combat movie, this is your option for Thanksgiving week. This is the big action release essentially for this holiday if you've already seen Black Panther. So I would probably look at this with modest expectations. It's probably not going to break out in quite the way of a midway a few years ago. But something still to look at because it's another one of those mid-range titles we've been begging for in theaters the last few months. Similar to The Woman King, I'm not sure if it quite has that same momentum, but it also could be one of those that you know is a little bit of a dark horse. Oh, Devotion is the movie that checks the box on what do you take dad and grandpa to at the movies? On, uh, on Black Friday after Thanksgiving. Right. It's got that written all over it. And like you say, these movies counter-program. They perform well. Now, the animated release from Disney that is going to be in theaters this holiday weekend is Strange World. Disney, which has struggled a little bit in this release date recently with similar titles. Didn't Encanto come out in a similar corridor during the pandemic? Is that at all an interesting comparable here? It is. And for better or worse, that's going to be the measuring stick for this movie. And it looks like so far, Strange World might not even quite reach the opening of Encanto, which is not a great look considering a year ago we were fighting the rise of the Omicron variant and families were still hesitant to come back. A lot has changed on that front. This movie is going to live or die on its own merits more than any pandemic factors. Yeah, tricky situation there for Disney. We'll be going into a little bit more of the reverberations of where Disney is right now as a studio. But Disney also has another title, which we have to assume is going to hold on to the top spot at the box office. Black Panther, Wakanda Forever in week three. Is this performing along your expectations, Sean? How is this holding up? How do you expect it to keep on holding through the holiday weekend? I think it's definitely on par with where things looked to be going. The second weekend hold, considering it was coming off of Veterans Day in its first frame, was very respectable. I would think, given the relative lack of new competition this weekend, it should have a decent shot at clearing $30 million. That's you know a great result in the third weekend for any movie. I know there is some <laughs> some conversation about whether or not this movie is enough to get us to Avatar. It, it certainly looks like it has a chance to remain the top movie until that happens. But, you know, the positive side is we're still talking about a potential $30 million weekend. 
third weekend, I should say, of a movie over Thanksgiving weekend with all of these counter programmers coming in behind it. So I think at the end of the day, theaters are going to be more than happy to see this movie still rolling. And talking about Avatar, we just recently published a forecasting update for Avatar The Way of Water. What's the latest you can share with us on our forecasting for this title? Because pre-sales actually started this week here in North America. Yeah, this is going to be one of those that uh, could easily change at any point because arguably one of the hardest movies to really forecast in a long time. I would put this in the category of a Top Gun Maverick in terms of recent films that you just really had to have a a wide consideration for what could or couldn't happen. Right now, before any consideration of pre-sales, which are going pretty well, I would say favoring heavily on premium formats, this looks like a movie that's that's probably destined to open somewhere in over a 100 million. I think that's fairly easy to say at this point. We're at 135 to 175 as a range right now, which seems fairly wide. But the consideration there is that this movie is going to have a much higher average ticket price than other films. A lot of leaning on 3D, of which is accounting for the bulk of showtimes that we're seeing so far. And that's the factor to look at sentiment wise, because moviegoers frankly burned out on the format after the original avatar. So James Cameron and Disney are asking viewers to come back and give the format a shot with the sequel. Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest questions for the release of this title, but I wouldn't just limit those questions to the performance of 3D. I'd look at the entire PLF sector as a whole. We know that PLF is a front loaded business model. It's an opening weekend business. What Avatar The Way of Water is going to be aiming to do is make sure you come back to see this movie in as many different premium formats as possible. I did that with Top Gun Maverick, for example. Screen X for one screening. You do the D box for the second. Maybe the third one you do 3D. This is going to have that ability in play, but the movie has to perform. The movie (laughs) has to be good enough that you want to go see it again because at three hours, 10 minutes, Asking people to go see something they've already seen is going to really, really rely on the strength of the title alone. Yeah, it's a big bet uh, between 3D, high frame rates, IMAX, every single other format here. People are going to have plenty of options to see this. So I'm really fascinated to see how it shakes out and what the favorite ends up being. Yeah. And as we talk about Disney, we do have to mention the big news that just came in before we started recording. Bob Iger, the former chief executive officer at Disney, coming back, replacing Bob Chapik, who came into the role in February 2020. Another player in the Disney atmosphere, Kareem Daniel, the executive that Chapik appointed to head media and entertainment at the studio, will also be leaving the company with Chapik. Sean, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves here, but it looks like very similar to what happened at Warner Brothers. The executives that had a streaming first philosophy at this studio seem to be heading out the door and they're bringing in someone that in the past had a lot of respect for theatrical exclusivity and prioritizing the theatrical experience. It's early days. Let's not get too ahead of ourselves. Do you think this spells something positive for exhibition? I do. I absolutely do. I think a lot of Bob Iger's legacy was coming under a little bit of a threat given recent decisions by Disney on a strategy level. And the timing of this is interesting because it's coming right as Strange World is opening, a movie that's not tracking to do very well by Disney animation standards. And also just a few weeks before Avatar, which is a major part of Iger's legacy from purchasing Fox with Avatar as a cornerstone for the next decade and the plans for doing that. So this is something I think, by and large, the exhibition industry 
anybody who is supportive of theatrical windows is probably cheering about right now. And they're, you know, like you said, still early days. It is still a different climate than when Iger left. Nothing's going to change on that front, but there are ways that it can be tackled differently that I think strategically is what they're hoping to see from him. Well, you know, someone that is really excited for Bob Iger to come back as CEO of Disney is AMC Theater CEO Adam Aaron, who took to Twitter shortly after the news was announced and said, quote, breaking news based on box office grosses, Disney is the biggest filmmaker of any movie studio. Bob Iger coming back to again lead Disney as its CEO is a big deal. Let me shout this from the mountaintop. I have the absolute highest respect for Bob Iger. This is Adam Aaron, CEO of AMC Theaters, tweeting this on November 20th while linking to the Wall Street Journal story about this news of Bob Iger coming back. Yeah, I mean, when the CEO of the biggest movie theater circuit in the world highlights this as a positive development, you have to think exhibition is very much behind this decision. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we'll see... I think in the months ahead, it already seems like they're rolling pretty fast, given the changes at the top. I would imagine this will impact some films that they had presumed would go to streaming. Maybe we'll start seeing some of those go back to theatrical plans in the next six to 12 months. And as we talk about movies, there's already a built-in audience for in streaming, how they could do on a theatrical setting. We have to bring it up. 600 theaters available on a holiday weekend run for Glass Onion, the sequel to Knives Out, coming out from Netflix at a major circuit near you. Sean, this is a watershed moment for exhibition working with a major streamer, but we can't expect blockbuster grosses, particularly over four days. And also, we're not even going to get these numbers if they even existed. There might be an admissions benchmark here given out by a circuit. But what are you expecting from whatever limited data we have around this release? Yeah, the hope is that this ends up doing well enough that Netflix goes back on its decision to not report numbers and actually does report something. But who knows, that won't happen until it ever happens. However, that being said, it's certainly tracking well. It's selling very well on a per theater basis. I expect it to earn the most out of all the new releases this weekend. And I would not be surprised if we're talking about this as being the big story over the holiday, because it's really the most positive one, I think, that could come out of this is being in exclusive to theaters over such an important holiday weekend. And every other new release has middling expectations, whereas this one is a sequel to a very beloved original film three years ago. And it's looking like it'll end up being on a per theater basis, the best performer. Again, you and I both know how it can be tricky to see some Netflix or other streaming titles getting box office figures for those. I hope that this is a change in the tides and that we get something next week. I totally agree, Sean, especially when you look at what happened at the box office last weekend. Fathom Events, the event cinema distributor, put out the first two episodes of the third season of The Chosen, which is a faith-based show that's available to stream. They made a theatrical event out of it, put it in the same number of screens that Universal put out their new release, She Said, and ended up making four times as much money and finishing up in third place. The Chosen from Fathom Events, those first two episodes of season three, coming in with $8.75 million. 
in this opening weekend that it had in theaters. Slightly behind the number two film, The Menu from Searchlight Pictures, that opened up with nine million, overperforming every other studio on the calendar with the exception of Disney. That's a fantastic benchmark and a great example that, hey, streaming and theatrical can coexist if you advertise it. Fathom Events just showed us the formula of how to do it right. Yeah, this is another fantastic example of a grassroots marketing campaign from a faith-based event that tends to fly under the radar even to this day. We, even though we've seen this happen before, this is a franchise that has a very strong following in those communities. And I think what we're seeing right now, a year ago, the Christmas episode of The Chosen was Fathom's best performer, and now this has topped that. We'll probably see season four next year, I would imagine, go into theaters. This is exactly the kind of specialty content and ways to fill the gaps between the big Hollywood releases that theaters are really hoping to see more of in the future. And talking about Fathom Events, they are this week's sponsor of the Box Office Podcast, and we'll be getting a message from them after this break. Sean, thank you so much for joining us. Good to be back. And we'll be coming back shortly after this message from Fathom Events to hear from Russ Fisher, the editorial director of the Box Office Studios, in a conversation looking back on the career of Steven Spielberg leading up to the release of The Fablements to more theaters this weekend. That's coming up after this break. Fathom Events is the recognized leader in event cinema and one of the top distributors of content to movie theaters globally. At Fathom, our slate of offerings include live performances from the Metropolitan Opera, iconic cinema releases with TCM's big screen classic series, top grossing documentaries, award-winning anime films as part of Studio Ghibli Fest, and a full offering of faith-based programming. Featured events on the horizon include the debut of Season 3, Episodes 1 and 2 of the hit series The Chosen, the story of Longfellow's famous poem I Heard the Bells, and the pivotal documentary Johnny Cash, Redemption of an American Hero. Fathom is your go-to partner for a successful event cinema experience. Go to fathomevents.com for more details. And we are back here on the Box Office Podcast with Russ Fisher, the editorial director of the Box Office Studios, which provides editorial content for movie theaters. Russ, we've got Spielberg to talk about this week, the release of The Fablements, already doing well in platform release, going to hit wide this coming weekend. With that expansion coming up, where do we start with this filmmaker that it feels (laughs) like so much of American cinema can be summed up when we talk about Steven Spielberg's influence. We had a planning call. We decided to start with West Side Story as an entry point to this conversation. Neither of us have seen The Fablements yet, but we have seen West Side Story. Yeah. So let's start with that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think West Side Story is a good entry point for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's recent. It's his most recent movie other than The Fablemans. The Fablemans also is a movie that delves back into Spielberg's childhood. It's literally about him as a young man and growing into the person who became capital letters Steven Spielberg as we know him now. And West Side Story also is rooted in the same years. You know, I think the first album he owned was the Broadway cast recording of West Side Story. And he's wanted to make his own version for decades. It's something he's wanted to do forever. And 
I think the thing with Spielberg that keeps us coming back to him and that keeps him at the forefront of American cinema when so many of the other people that he really started out working alongside have, if not fallen to the wayside, at least not maintained that like primacy of voice in the same way he has, is that Spielberg is unusually good at taking an idea that you think you understand and finding a way into it that is surprising and compelling. West Side Story, he and screenwriter Tony Kushner, which at that point, that was their third collaboration together. Fableman's is their fourth. You know, they recontextualize a lot of stuff of West Side Story. They made a lot of things work that for me, and we discussed this before quite months back, but you know, there's stuff in West Side Story, the original. It's a show I like, it's a movie I like. There's stuff in there that never really worked for me. And I think that the movie directly engages with that, especially in terms of like looking at these gangs and being like, no, they're bad. <laughs> like these, <laughs> these are not aspirational characters. It doesn't feel like a remake in that sense. I think you're absolutely no. right. It's a movie that, yes, we've seen the show before. We've seen, I think, a very strong film version before, even if it doesn't hold up 100%. It's still an iconic film, the 1961 version. But in that remake, as you say, it's sort of designed to be a companion piece. It's not a movie that ever feels like it's in competition with the original. And I think so much of what Spielberg has done for American cinema and global audiences is taking things that you have some familiarity of before, like you mentioned. We'll be talking about all of these different concepts from books to genres and then giving you something that you didn't expect to see that can live alongside with that concept. This movie, I think, is one of his best, probably one of the tougher assignments that he has on paper, but it's a movie that unfortunately doesn't really work commercially. And putting us in a situation with the release of The Fablemans, where, yes, I think the industry is hoping for a commercially viable film and a critically entertaining and fulfilling movie, But there are questions after, I think, the last decade or so in Spielberg's career. As we look back at his filmography together in this podcast for us, those questions have always been there and the answer has been fluctuating. He started in television in some ways. You know, he directed the first regular series episode of Columbo, didn't do the pilot. It was Richard Irving, but he did, you know, the first episode. And it's crazy. You watch that episode of Columbo that Spielberg directed, and the first maybe five or 10 minutes are virtually dialogue free. It's entirely visual storytelling. And it's like, wow, man, they were really doing crazy stuff on TV in the 70s with these cop shows. And then the credit comes up, Steven Spielberg. It's like, oh, okay. I get it. You know, he does duel. It's a, you know, a movie of the week that gets bumped up to theatrical status in some territories. It's a Corman movie. Am I wrong about yeah, that? It's a Roger Corman film? Yeah, 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 totally. You know, he does a movie called Sugar Land Express, which is fun, not doesn't set the world on fire or anything. And then gets to Jaws and Jaws changes literally everything. It changes the entire global film industry. We, we can't, I don't think that's overselling it or overstating it. Jaws is one of those benchmarks when we look at how exhibition works, about how distribution operates, about just how audiences respond to film. This movie in 1975 is just so unique and stands out so boldly from everything else that this is probably the movie that we will always remember 
Spielberg. On. Yeah, and I mean, it's he wasn't the first choice to make the movie, but like I think the Peter Benchley novel had been a beach read for a couple of years. Universal had been had owned the rights for a couple of years. They were trying to make it, went through a couple of hands, went through some development. But Spielberg was young. He was 26. You know, he'd just done Sugarland Express. He wanted to do Jaws and he like he really pushed for it. But at the same time, like I think even he had complicated feelings about doing it. But ultimately the way that the movie came together was I think kind of perfect for him in that it wasn't a backlot movie. You know, they shot on Martha's Vineyard. He's far from studio interference. And you have to wonder if this was a more conventionally shot movie, if he even would have been able to finish it. It's an early indicator of Spielberg knowing what to focus on, not to focus on the shark. Focus on these characters. Focus on what makes them afraid of stuff. Focus on why they're annoyed with one another. Like it becomes, you know, when we're planning this, you use the term elevated genre movie, which is a term that I think is a lot of people dislike, but I think it's also very applicable to Jaws because it's like, it is a horror movie. It's a thriller. It's a monster movie. I mean, it's explicitly about a giant shark that actually leaps out of the water onto a boat and eats Robert Shaw at one point. But the thing is, it works because of the actors. It works because of the characters works because Spielberg knows what to do with it. And, you know, there's so many ways that this movie comes together where it could have just failed every single day on the production of that movie. It could have failed. Universal could have pulled the plug. I mean, all of this stuff could have happened and it doesn't, you get that score. Every element of this film that had to work works perfectly. And I think it's one of those serendipitous moments in film history where the entire collaborative process of making a film that, like you mentioned, Russ, can fall apart at any moment from second one to second five. Everything can fall apart. It all comes in sync in a way that, you know, maybe Casablanca is the other example of a studio picture that you kind of look at all the ingredients individually and you're like, ooh, this can go wrong. But together as a whole just works perfectly in sync. For me, Jaws is that perfect mix of a Hitchcock studio film and a Roger Corman quickie. And you get both of those elements together in a movie that works as a thriller, that works as a drama, that works as a political potboiler. It works in every way it wants to. It works even in ways that I don't think it's aware that it's working. (laughs) And for audiences, that's just such a killer mix And it really, really blows up in a way culturally that very few films, even in this era of like movies like The Exorcist that become huge cultural global touch points, Jaws blows up in a way that very, very few films in this time had before. Yeah. And it also does a thing like we were talking, we opened talking about West Side Story, talking about Spielberg sort of making you see something differently despite you thinking like you think you know what it is and he shows it to you in a way. And when he's at the top of his game, he doesn't just do that. He redefines it. Like he creates images that are so indelible that you can't look at the thing without thinking about what he's done, you know? And Jaws is the first example of this. He does this over and over again and he doesn't do it with every movie. He bombs sometimes, but when he really clicks, you know, he does it here. He does it with Jurassic Park. 
He does it with Saving Private Ryan. You know, every once in a while, he does this thing that is so powerful that you don't look at it. You can't look at it any other way except through the lens that he's given you. Also, the unique part of Jaws, when we look at movies coming out in 1975, these sort of big blockbusters, and we spoke about this briefly before we recorded, if we look at things today, 2022, one of the highest grossing films of 10 years ago was what? The Avengers, 2012? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's your basically like blockbuster equivalent of a huge movie from 10 years ago. There's not that much of a difference there in terms of aesthetics and language and audience sentiment in film grammar. It's fairly similar. But when you look at where the industry was in 1965 to 1975, Jaws is an extremely different blockbuster than, say, Thunderball, right? The James yeah. Bond movie. That oh, was yeah. 10 years earlier. It seems like a hundred years of film history have passed between Sean Connery and Thunderball and going back into the water in Jaws. That's how much of a jump it is in terms of where audiences are and how Spielberg can connect with that contemporary sentiment with those audiences. Well, and it's, you know, Spielberg is associated with the new Hollywood movement, which is the whole crew of producers, filmmakers, and actors who really helped change up the studio system beginning in the late 60s and going into the 70s. And it's a whole crowd of people. And if you look at the other top grossing movies in 1975, it's a bunch of new Hollywood movies. You know, it's Cuckoo's Nest, it's Shampoo, Dog Day Afternoon. You know, it's a bunch of these movies that are representative of very much what the new Hollywood was and Spielberg is. And he, at the same time, is not, you know, he's making a studio movie outside of Hollywood, you know, jaws again, like he goes out on the water and is like, Nope, I'm just going to keep shooting until they don't let me shoot anymore. And I'm going to come <laughs> back with the movie. And that is very new Hollywood. Aesthetically, it's very new Hollywood where, you know, you're tossing out, you know, a movie like Jaws could not have been shot according to the aesthetic rules of the old studio system because they would not permit that level of mismatched, you know, footage. You just couldn't do it. It wasn't the way things were done. And with Jaws, it's like, uh, you know what, maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe it only matters if it works. And this works. And I think Spielberg's marriage of like knowing the new Hollywood thing and knowing when to reject certain aspects of the old studio system, but also not pushing so far out on a limb that he's alienating audiences is, you know, a fundamental aspect of his character as a filmmaker. And we see that for the decades to come. That new Hollywood designation when we talk about Spielberg, it can sometimes be problematic because sometimes our interpretation of what new Hollywood is, we might think of films like Scorsese's Taxi Driver, right? In 1976, a movie that comes out a year after Jaws, a very different type of film. But new Hollywood is actually a much bigger term than the prestige or arthouse pictures that are coming out during this era. We have to remember that new Hollywood includes filmmakers like George Lucas, that comes out in 1977 by doing a very Spielberg-y type of movie, getting something that you think you're familiar with, science fiction movie with a lot of Kurosawa influences, and redefining your expectations of that with Star Wars, right? Or even a situation of where Brian De Palma is working at in the 1970s, working within popular genres, working with source material like pulp novels, and taking things a little bit differently once it comes to that filmmaking level. That's why a movie like Carrie works. When you watch Carrie, 
especially if you're part of that audience during the 1970s, it's unlike any other horror movie you had ever seen before. And that was a guarantee that Brian De Palma could give you as a brand name auteur moving forward. Spielberg was part of that generation leaning towards the multiplex instead of the art house. These guys didn't even all go to school together, you know, but like a couple of them went to USC together, but it's Coppola, it's Lucas, De Palma, Spielberg, Scorsese, like Paul Schrader's kind of in there, you know, but that core group, they weren't just young filmmakers working at the same time. They were friends. They worked on each other's movies. They like ended up marrying and or cheating on each other with some of the same Women, I mean, it's like it, it was is very a, insular and kind of is, incestuous, can we say? Absolutely, yeah. And it's interesting how the movies that come out during this era in the mid and late 1970s from this generation of filmmakers, they're not necessarily coming from established IPs, right? This is a lot of creativity that's coming from either popular novels, meaning bestsellers, like you mentioned, the Peter Bensley novel Jaws, that you would read on the beach. The type of book you buy at the airport. Yeah. These are the type of movies that they're making, right? It's not coming totally. from a prestigious place. They're taking something that is easily accessible and trying to make one heck of a movie out of that. And I think there's something to be said out of that because in the 1970s, this is what really reconnects Hollywood with contemporary audiences. You saw that decline of the studio system in the mid to late 1960s of these big overblown productions that just aren't connecting with folks. And then in the 70s, the movies that work, look at what Paramount is doing at this point. Love Story, The Godfather. These are bestsellers. This isn't great literature. We mentioned uh, De Palma a second ago. He goes to Stephen King before Stephen King was a brand name, gets a book like Carrie, and makes a horror movie like you've never seen a horror movie before. That's, I think, what, what Spielberg is able to bring to the table in this bestseller to blockbuster frame, in this bestseller to blockbuster model that he is a big, big proponent of and to an extent is still doing to this day. I mean, we can look at the filmography of Steven Spielberg in the years after Jaws. He goes back to this well, and when he does, the results are usually very positive. Absolutely. I mean, Jurassic Park. <laughs> even something like lincoln right i mean lincoln is based out of a book that your uncle gave you for you know (laughs) for christmas or that you saw at the airport and you just picked up it's that type of book that people know is out there and he decides to say hey this is probably my working ground for a very good movie absolutely yeah and you know he follows up and we're not going to go through everything movie by movie because there's just too much and some stuff we've talked about (laughs) we'd be here for hours But I do think it's significant to go to Close Encounters next, which is his next movie, which is a genre movie. Obviously, it's about people having actual encounters with aliens, seeing a UFO, but it's also a divorce movie. And it is kind of, I think it's good to look at in the context of Spielberg because it shows you how he doesn't just like with Jaws, he made that genre movie work thanks to the characters and the actors, you know, it's easy to forget 
the fact that divorce was a huge cultural tipping point in the US throughout the 1970s. You know, no fault divorce laws really changed the game. Divorce became sort of removed a little bit from the church. Divorce became more accepted. I think if you want to talk about a defining thing culturally in America in the 1970s, divorce and its acceptance willingly or not into American life is in the top three. I mean, it is a massive, massive thing. And Close Encounters is explicitly a divorce movie. And it's a movie about a family breaking up. It's, it's, you know, it's like a guy who becomes fixated on aliens over his family. Like you can't get much more explicit than that. And you know, a couple of years later, you and I talked about this. You've got Kramer versus Kramer. 1979. Yeah, that's 1979. Absolutely. Biggest movie of the year. Best picture winner. A divorce drama being the highest grossing film of any given year. 1979. As you're mentioning, Russ, that is how front of mind something like divorce is culturally in the United States. These are blockbuster hits. These are cultural talking points. It's not just vapid entertainment. And Spielberg is able to connect with that sentiment two years earlier in Close Encounters by making a movie about aliens that's really about the breakdown and divorce in a white suburban middle class family in the United States. That's the genius of that movie. And that's what makes that movie work. Yeah. And then he kind of does it again with E.T. a few years later, (laughs) you know, where it's like E.T. is, you know, the veneer of suburbia, you know, but it's a single mother. We don't know too much about what's happened in that family, but it's clear that everybody's struggling a little bit. And I think that, you know, the fact that this extraterrestrial force comes into the story is in like the very classic horror sense, this inciting event that reveals the cracks that are there and that everybody's trying to ignore. And all of the conflict that happens is not just because, oh, there's an alien and obviously an alien is weird, but it's because everything is already kind of broken and it just takes this extra push. And, you know, this, this weird little potato alien is the push. And by the time we get to this film in terms of Hollywood film history and American film history, a lot of that aesthetic of the 1970s is pretty much washed away with a more corporate-friendly, sanitized glean. I mean, I think the cinematography or the de facto cinematography of American cinema changes significantly from the 1970s to the 1980s. When we watch a movie like E.T., what stands out to me the most is that these are the aesthetics of suburban middle-class white America in 1982. And if you're not from the United States, and if you're not from part of this group, they become aspirational aesthetics. They become codified as this is what the United States looks like. This is what life in the United States is. And it's very interesting, I think, coming at it from a perspective of someone that originally saw this not having lived in the United States and now living and making a life here in the U.S., looking back at this movie and recognizing those aesthetics, Spielberg is able to very efficiently tell stories about culture, bring in elements of genre, whether it's sci-fi, whether it's horror, in the background of something that is instantly recognizable for audiences. And I think that's what the genius is here. It's a movie that works because of the kids. It's a movie that works because of the production design. Everything else just adds to the elements. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, we discussed this earlier, how to you, you know, you felt very outside of a movie like E.T. because it was very much not your experience. Whereas for me, E.T. 
setting the alien aside was explicitly my experience. Like I grew up in Northern California. I, my neighborhood is virtually like the neighborhood I lived in when I was in elementary school visually is almost indistinguishable from the neighborhood in ET. And it has to be said, the neighborhood in Poltergeist, a tightly related movie, which also, you know, is a cracks of suburbia movie where it's like literally (laughs) built on the bones of people who came before. But it's like I, as a kid, and even now I watch ET and it is so weirdly familiar to me because you know, setting aside, you know, the single parent aspect, my parents were together, although there were a lot of times where it seemed like they were not going to be. And E.T. was like, if you needed to pull out a movie that is like visually representative of my childhood at a certain point, weirdly, E.T. is probably it. It's a fascinating movie because of that. And I think that's why it plays really well as a double feature with Close Encounters. They're movies with sci-fi elements, but really they're domestic dramas. Well, and I mean, E.T. kind of grew out of an idea to do not exactly a sequel, but like a more horror-oriented follow-up to Close Encounters, where, and then I think, unless I'm completely misremembering, like E.T. became its own thing, and then some of those horror ideas made their way into Poltergeist. Of course, our listeners that maybe have a firmer grasp of where Spielberg is may have noticed we skipped over Raiders of the Lost Ark. We will be talking about all of the Indiana Jones movies, including Raiders of the Lost Ark, in a future episode of the Box Office Podcast, because there's another Indiana Jones movie coming out next year. That that will be a great excuse to delve into specifically what we like about that franchise, the way we did with Jurassic Park some months back. But let's mention those Indiana Jones movies real quick, Russ, because we can't really gloss over them immediately We've already talked about how, at this point, Spielberg is making really two different type of movies coming into the mid-80s. He's making your big shark genre movie that has a lot of DNA with horror and other popular elements. And he's also making these movies that might bring those elements, leave them in the background, and really ground the story with this nuclear American suburban family that comes from a very white and middle-class perspective. They seem to be like the vanilla and chocolate flavors of Spielberg's career at this point up into the 1980s. But that changes in the mid 80s with a film like The Color Purple. It's Spielberg's first kind of departure. It's him doing something different. He's with Warner Brothers and, you know, he's kind of more or less, he's not the first choice for this movie, but Alice Walker, who wrote the book and is very involved as a producer in the movie, does ultimately sign off on Spielberg. But what we see with The Color Purple is like kind of a a real mismatch between Spielberg's approach and the material. I don't think that he, in some places he's really good for this, But what I find when I watch this movie now is there are good performances. You know, Whoopi Goldberg is terrific. Margaret Avery is terrific. Oprah is terrific. And Danny Glover, I like, but he's a tough character because he's not the villain of the piece exactly, but he's a misogynistic, controlling, abusive piece of trash. And the movie knows it, but like also, I think Spielberg tries to find some humanity in Mr., the character played by Danny Glover. And instead, I think he just accentuates him into caricature. And I think that is representative of the movie as a whole, where 
there are moments of real beauty, especially between with scenes between Whoopi Goldberg and Margaret Avery. Margaret Avery plays Shug, this kind of dance hall singer that is Mister's mistress, but who also feels a little bit of rivalry with with Sully, the the Whoopi Goldberg character. So there's stuff between them that's really good. But then elsewhere, I think that. Spielberg's kind of broader tendencies take over in a way that doesn't complement the material and it makes it a little to me now kind of cringy. I think it's well-intentioned, but I don't think it really hits. And yeah, so it, we see this again like ironically like this is something that comes up with Hook where I think his approach to the material is mismatched. It doesn't really gel. And we see this in a couple of other places. Always is kind of like that as well. There are a number of instances where it's just like, oh, the Spielberg's thing and where he had evolved to at that point just doesn't click with the material he's approaching. And there's an ambition to this movie that isn't there in other movies, which is not calling the other movies that he's made at this point unambitious. They're very ambitious, just in different ways, right? The color purple seems like an explicit acknowledgement from Spielberg of trying his hand in a different type of movie. Does it work perfectly? No. From what you're saying, I think it seems like the type of Hollywood adaptation very much of its time. I don't think if this movie gets today, any of the production decisions or creative decisions taken there remain. So I think we can see it in isolation, but still giving us a sort of hint towards the decisions that Spielberg is going to take moving forward. And one of those examples that comes a little bit after this is Empire of the Sun, which follows Color Purple in the 1980s. I think Empire of the Sun works much better than the Color Purple because it's ground on which I think Spielberg feels much more solid, you know, adaptation of J.G. Ballard's semi-autobiographical novel, also arguably a divorce movie, you know, about a kid who's separated from his parents. In this case, he's separated from them, you know, by the attack of the Japanese army while he's in Shanghai during World War II. But, you know, it's like this is a movie where, as with Color Purple, which is a beautifully cast movie, and I think that casting is a lot of the reason that Color Purple remains like a viable and interesting document. Empire of the Sun, you've got, you know, the first big Christian Bale performance, and he's fantastic. You know, you've got John Malkovich doing great work. It's a really interesting movie. And it's, I think, Empire of the Sun shows you Spielberg sort of merging a couple of impulses. Like he's merging this serious real world drama impulse with some of his genre leanings. And that's going to come back again in the 90s when he's really successful with Schindler's List and with Saving Private Ryan and ultimately with Munich as well 10 years after that. Yeah, absolutely. I think the 80s kind of give us a glimpse on what Spielberg is going to get absolutely right once you hit the 90s. And that is being able to go from very commercially viable audience-friendly films to seamlessly, sometimes months after their release in theaters, follow that up with a critically acclaimed drama that is ambitious in a completely other level, right? And we see that over and over again in the 90s, maybe even early 2000s. The 80s are capped off with Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, sort of bookmarking, sort of putting a brief pause at that franchise that he had shepherded into existence with George Lucas. And that basically frees him up in the 90s to do films that either launch franchises or stand completely well on their own 
And that's probably the best way to talk about 1993, which when we talk about Spielberg, if you want to sum up his eras, 1993, we have to look back at as this is the year of Spielberg. We spoke about this together, Russ, when we went over the uh, Jurassic Park box office history episode here on the podcast. Yeah, I mean, it's 1993. is It's the second year where he releases two major features in the same calendar year, the first being 1989 with Always and that last Indiana Jones movie. And I like that you characterized it as a brief pause. It was nearly 20 years. You're old. <laughs> 20 years seems like a brief pause. So I'm just going to point that out. But yeah, you know, 93 is a big deal. It's like he doesn't just make and release Jurassic Park and Schindler's List. He's doing those movies like literally back to back, like in post-production on Jurassic while he's shooting Schindler's. For the same studio, right? They're both universal titles. They're both universal titles. Yeah. yeah, they're you know, he only it's weird, he only does those two movies with Warners. He does Color Purple and Empire of the Sun with Warners, and then he bounces back to Universal for always. And of course Paramount had the Indiana Jones movies, so he does Last Crusade with Paramount. But, you know, by and large, up you know, until the formation of DreamWorks in the late 90s, you know, he's really with Universal. And the 93, 3-2 for Jurassic and Schindler's is, yeah, they're both working with Universal. And that's probably the only way that those two movies could have happened at the same time, maybe is with Universal being able to say like, okay, yeah, you do this one and then you can also do your, your Holocaust movie. Looking at the movies he's making, he's clearly not just satisfied to do the stuff that it's easy for him to do. So he does color purple. He does always. He does, he bookends, he takes, you know, a couple of big genre movies, but then he does a drama in the middle and he continues to do this through the course of his career. And I think it's the thing that keeps him viable. And all of that is encapsulated in 1993, where you get a major effects movie where again he redefines how you see dinosaurs and you get Schindler's List at the same time. And it's like he doesn't even necessarily redefine the Holocaust. I think for a lot of people that was certainly a younger audience, that's their first vision of the Holocaust. It's a studio film about the Holocaust. I mean, as a concept, who could get away with making that? I mean, even now, that is such a risky proposition. And by and large, Spielberg's able to deliver a film that is very well received by audiences. And we have to look at that year as its peak. As the peak, not creatively of Spielberg, but Spielberg as an auteur brand. Spielberg as a concept that audiences recognize in the movie's marketing and that studios are seeking out to attach to a project. Unfortunately, Russ, he follows that up in 1997 with a similar formula, two movies, one for you, one for me, that don't work. The sequel to Jurassic Park, Jurassic Park, The Lost World, which... It's terrible. I'm sorry. That's the one word we have to use to describe it. And Amistad, which unfortunately does not work. So it's the same formula as 93, a big mainstream movie for audiences. It's a huge box office hit, but audiences don't connect. And then Amistad, a historical drama that I think, again, it just doesn't land in 1997. I think we have a coming down of that Spielberg reputation up to this point. Amistad is Important because it's like this is where Spielberg and David Geffen and Jeffrey Katzenberg, like huge, huge, huge names in the mid 90s, have formed their own company. And it's like this is almost like the new Hollywood thing coming full circle, where it's like suddenly it's not just, oh, these guys are 
being able to do movies in the studio system. It's like, no, they're trying to do their own studio. And Amistad is, I don't know if it's the first released DreamWorks movie. There's also Peacemaker, which is that early George Clooney movie that literally, I can't remember the last time I heard anyone even mention Peacemaker, much less actually talking about it. But, you know, Amistad is, so it's not just Spielberg kind of like doing a historical, a period piece, you know, a weighty movie about slavery, but it is, you know, him doing it as kind of like the co-head of a studio. And the fact that it doesn't work is kind of a big deal, (laughs) you know, because I think it's, it is, like you say, it's kind of a, you know, bring, being brought down to earth in a way. In a way that I don't think he had faced in his career before. There were movies we've mentioned that didn't work in 1941, being an, an early slip-up. Titles like Hook, you see, you're like, okay, yeah, that's a Spielberg movie, but, uh, uh, you know, it doesn't really help or, or hurt. But 1997, I think, is a step back. It's a step back where everything that worked up to this point didn't work. And I think that puts a lot of pressure with the next movie that we're going to see from Steven Spielberg coming out in 1998, Saving Private Ryan. It's a watershed movie for Spielberg, no question. I think it's a significant movie in a lot of respects. It's not my favorite Spielberg movie by a long shot, but in terms of what it did at the time, what it did for his career, what it did for the careers of multiple people in that movie, including Matt Damon, even including Tom Hanks. The other thing about Saving Private Ryan that I think is extraordinarily important, in especially in the way that the media landscape has done now, is has gone in the last 20 years, I mean, is that Saving Private Ryan leads directly to Band of Brothers on HBO, which is Spielberg and Tom Hanks producing. And Band of Brothers is one of those early prestige TV series, you know, HBO is already known for some of this sort of storytelling, but I think Band of Brothers pushes it forward because Band of Brothers is expensive in a way that no other TV, TV just wasn't expensive or not expensive in this way. Right. And it didn't look like a TV show. And I think that's the other thing that Band of Brothers is able to do through this connection. There's a clear cinematic ambition with the aesthetics of television yeah. that we hadn't seen in television before. And I think without Saving Private Ryan, Band of Brothers doesn't happen. Band of Brothers is one of those early examples of HBO being like, you know what, let's spend what it costs to do this show. And I would go so far as to say, without Band of Brothers, you don't end up with Game of Thrones. But you know what, let's take it back one step further. HBO is involved in the production of Amistad. Let's not forget that. Oh, that's true. HBO is a player in making that film. So there's a connection right there between HBO and Spielberg that through the strength of Saving Private Ryan, I completely agree, they take a risk because it was a risk to make Band of Brothers. And you're right. I think there's a clear line from that success of Band of Brothers on HBO to them greenlighting a show like Game of Thrones, which in any other era would have been a trilogy for the big screen. It's a major comeback for Steven Spielberg, who then takes a very ambitious project with his next title, 2001's AI, Artificial Intelligence. This is a project that was thoroughly developed by Stanley Kubrick, one of multiple unmade, you know, mythical Stanley Kubrick movies that we thought we were never going to get to see. I have to be honest here, Russ, I haven't been very vocal about this. I'm not the biggest Steven Spielberg fan, I am a massive Stanley Kubrick fan. Because of that, I've been afraid to even touch 
AI. Yeah, I mean AI. So to be clear, you know Spielberg agreed to take AI from Kubrick in like 1995, before Kubrick's death. And I think that Kubrick knew, you know, I'm never going to make this movie. It's just I'm not going to be able to do it. And at that point, I don't know how deep Kubrick was into Eyes Wide Shut at that point, but he was probably already into pre-production on it. Obviously, once he started shooting Eyes Wide Shut, it took. He shot that movie for a long, long time. He might still be shooting it in heaven somewhere. Somewhere he's he's still shooting Eyes Wide Shut. It's still in post-production. Yeah. I think even Spielberg was a little daunted by it. And he tabled it. And then it was really after Kubrick died that he was kind of like, okay, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do this. I did not love the movie when it came out. It was another example where at the time I felt like it was one of those mismatch scenarios kind of like the color purple. Like I felt like Spielberg's approach to the material was well-intentioned and in some ways, maybe even too reverential, too respectful, but I've always felt like a movie to me that wasn't Spielberg didn't really make his own and it didn't really work. One of the big reasons I haven't tried to even engage with it is that it's been 20 years since AI came out. We're still not talking about AI. No one is talking about this movie. There are movies that do stand out, and that's Spielberg filmography. But because of my own subjective qualms and maybe reservations about the film, and the fact that it really hasn't been part of a critical conversation since the year it came out, I've really tried to keep a distance from it. But the movies that come out the year after that, in 2002 are actually two of my favorite Spielberg movies (laughs) ever released. Minority Report, starring Tom Cruise, and Catch Me If You Can with Tom Hanks and Leonardo DiCaprio. I absolutely love these films. Yeah, I love both of them. I have good memories because I did press for both of those movies. And so Minority Report is where I met Spielberg (laughs) for the first time doing press for that movie. So it was like, yeah, okay, this is cool. I just, you know, now I've talked to Spielberg. Fun. I don't even know what happened to that material. It's long gone. But anyway, yeah, I think they're both good movies. And so Minority Report to me is an interesting sort of comparison point against AI because Minority Report is one of many Philip K. Dick adaptations. You know, it's based on Philip K. Dick's story. And a lot of those, a lot of Philip K. Dick's short stories, especially, they're good as a starting off point, but a lot of those movies do not end up feeling like Philip K. Dick. You know, they don't feel like the source material, but they don't also don't really feel like anything else. And in the late 90s, early 2000s, there were a few of these, and most of them are really not very good at all. And then there's Minority Report, where I don't know that I like when I think of Philip K. Dick adaptations, I don't think of Minority Report, but that is because unlike AI, I think Spielberg did a better job of making the material his own. And so I think that Minority Report stands out as an example of Spielberg taking that inspiration from PKD's work and really turning out something that felt very whole and felt like a Spielberg movie. And very timely. Let's remember, this is a post 9-11 film about surveillance state. And I think a lot of the reservations that a lot of us had after the initial shock of 9-11 here in the United States, a lot of these societal changes that we're seeing in the United States, and the rise of the internet as well, the rise of e-commerce, the rise of digital tracking for consumers, all of these factors that are sort of bubbling under the surface of American society really come to a head in a movie like Minority Report 
that is extremely fun to watch. Visually, it really works. There's a lot of good effects. Cruz is great. I think Cruz is really energetic and is a good use of him. It's got a terrific supporting cast. You know, Samantha Morton's in there, Colin Farrell, Max von Sydow is in there, a whole lot of other people that really make it work. And it's just top to bottom. It's a, it's a solid effort from Spielberg. And it's that press tour, isn't that 2005 press tour where the Tom Cruise public meltdown the kind couch of jumping. just starts, yeah, just starts to go downhill. So it's the last sort of pre- Scientology infused Tom Cruise star persona that we have. This is Tom Cruise when he was still to a level relatable. I think his star power, especially right now after Top Gun Maverick, is still beyond the charts. But there is a general apprehension that happens after the release of War of the Worlds in 2005. But I do want to bring this back very quickly to 2002 because I don't want to forget Catch Me If You Can. This is a small movie in the sense that it doesn't have to go above and beyond to impress you, but it has two extremely charismatic leads in DiCaprio and Hanks. If you had to ask me what is the sort of 2000s filmmaking from Hollywood that I like, I would bring up a movie like Catch Me If You Can. And I would say I would have preferred if the 2010s would have given me more Catch Me If You Can's instead of the barrage of superhero titles that would go on to define Hollywood in the ensuing decade. Yeah, I mean, I think Catch Me If You Can is a terrific movie. It's massively entertaining. It's got huge energy, but it makes time for, you know, the emotional and psychological vulnerabilities of both the Leonardo DiCaprio character and the Tom Hanks character. You know, I think it's fun because in years since, like, I think it's more or less been accepted that a lot of Frank Abagnale's stories that were the, the basis for the DiCaprio character were completely made up and <laughs> total fictions. <laughs> that makes it better. It Are makes you it, <laughs> I agree. Yeah. It makes it better to me. He's still conning people. I love it. Yeah, exactly. And I talked to him, I talked to Abingdale when they were doing press for it. And he was massively entertaining to talk to. He was awesome to talk to. And it's like, oh, a bunch of this stuff is BS. Fine. I don't care. You know, but it's, you know, it's also like Catch Me If You Can is interesting because, you know, DiCaprio has obviously he's had Titanic, but then after Titanic, he had a few movies which were like, not quite there. DiCaprio hasn't really capitalized on Titanic in the way that I think everybody sort of assumed was going to happen. But then you get Catch Me If You Can, and Catch Me If You Can is sort of happening at the same time as Gangs of New York. And that's sort of like DiCaprio off to the races with a new suite of major filmmakers, primarily Martin Scorsese. So it's like begins the, you know, really gets the 2000s into motion for him. So it's like, you're right, it's a small movie in a certain way, but it is, you know, it's a big deal. And it's also a great movie. I think it still plays really, really well, which is a pleasure. It's so hard to get these sort of big studio films with a major filmmaker with huge stars that are self-assured and confident in their storytelling. It doesn't rush to prove anything to you. It doesn't have to prove itself to the audience. That's something that's been uniquely absent from American cinema, I think, since the 1980s, basically after Spielberg redefines a big (laughs) studio film in 1975. And this is, I think, a revision to what American cinema could be that, again, I think, uh, unfortunately, we didn't get too much of. Even in Spielberg's own career, it's interesting that he follows up these two movies 
with another two-film year in 2005 with a similar sort of formula, right? War of the Worlds, a massive, big-budget sci-fi movie Huge. with Tom Cruise. Yeah. He did that in 2002 with The Great Effect. And then a quiet, introspective film that's kind of difficult for audiences that are expecting something to come at them at the surface level. And that is, of course, Munich, which, in my opinion, to this day, is his strongest film. It's not the most iconic film. It's not the reference film. It's not the one audiences will remember him for. But when we talk about a movie as a whole, I think Munich is the most interesting assignment that Spielberg takes and executes it perfectly. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's, I think you go back to a movie like The Color Purple, where he's trying to apply his skill set to a story that is important, you know, capital I important in a way. And where I think he was mismatched with the material in The Color Purple, he is exactly right for the material in Munich. And it's wild because, you know, you could very easily see Munich being made by somebody like Paul Greengrass or any number of other filmmakers. Greengrass is a great shout. That's when I think of that on paper of that script, if I'm in a studio, I think, oh, this is a Greengrass project. And that's a certain type of film. Totally. The film that Spielberg turns in is unique and unlike anything I've seen from him before. I'm even going to go with a hot take here, Russ. I <laughs> think Schindler's List, there are decisions there creatively and structurally that don't hold up today. I saw that recently in the uh, Dolby Cinema re-release. I mean, it, it was great for its time. I don't want to take anything away from its contemporary impact when it was released. But when it comes to Munich, every little bit of Munich is still a film that I can defend in a way that I like your reaction of Color Purple, that when you're removed from some of these, they look very much part of their era. Munich is oddly timeless in the way he's able to deliver something that could have been made in the 70s, 80s, 90s, or today. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I totally agree. And Munich, crucially, Spielberg's first collaboration with Tony Kushner, who co-writes the script with Eric Roth, I think. And honestly, I think the Spielberg, not having seen The Fablemans, I think the Spielberg-Kushner collaborations are his strongest films of the past 15 years. You know, Munich, Lincoln, West Side Story. I think... You know, to me, those are absolutely the best movies in the latter half of Spielberg's career. And they're all Kushner collaborations. Yeah, because I think what follows this year of 2005 is inconsistent at best, unfortunately. We've got the return to the Indiana Jones franchise in 2008, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. We'll go into those Indiana Jones movies in a future podcast. But I don't want to go say, into that one if, if I can. I don't think anyone does. Uh, if there's a movie that no one wants to talk about in his career, it's probably that. That doesn't work perfectly. That's saying it nicely. Really, starting in 2008, up until the release of West Side Story, there's a good 10, 13 years there where there is an odd amount of inconsistency with Spielberg's output, either commercially or critically. Not everything works here. There are some exceptions in a rather forgettable decade and a half or so. Let's talk about the ones that do stand out for us, because you know I don't think anybody is tuning in or still listening to hear about us talk about the BFG, for example. No one cares. I don't think anyone remembers that exists. But let's talk about the things that do work here. You mentioned the Kushner collaborations. Lincoln is one of those movies. Yeah. I think Lincoln's a terrific movie. You know, it's not a crowd-pleasing movie, but, you know, it's got a fully committed Daniel Day-Lewis. And I think it is a movie that is ready to 
I think it's as clear eyed a movie about that political, that time in politics and that time in American history as we're going to get. You know, I think it's great to see that movie that doesn't just unabashedly, you know, canonize Lincoln. I think it's great to see that everything that Lincoln represents now was very hard fought and in many cases only barely won. And that all of the things that, you know, we consider as successes in Lincoln's political career all came at massive cost. And that's really interesting stuff. I think that you talk about a timely movie and I think Lincoln is a perennially timely movie. I think it's really great to be reminded that the modern political era is not even necessarily the worst one and that the political eras that we've enjoyed in which there was less overt strife and at least the appearance of collaboration and the ability to communicate across the aisle, that those are maybe the exceptions rather than the rule. And that, you know, many of the most significant points in our nation's history have been characterized by significant political discord and turmoil. He follows that up with a movie that is also, I think, a solid Steven Spielberg, Tom Hanks collaboration, Bridge of Spies. Yeah, you know, you talk about that sort of mid-budget, you know, the sort of thriller that Catch Me If You Can represents that we don't see very much. I would say that the immediate successor to Catch Me If You Can is a Ridley Scott movie, is Matchstick Men, which came out a year later. But then you do occasionally, from Spielberg, get this movie like Bridge of Spies, where it's a very adult thriller, like it doesn't have the any of this sort of high-flying or comedic overtones of Catch Me If You Can, but it's just like a solid political thriller. It's very well-crafted. It's not the easiest movie to watch because you got to pay attention to Bridge of Spies if you want to actually take anything out of it, which, you know, a movie like Catch Me If You Can is a pretty good, like, put it on cable when you're home with your family for Thanksgiving kind of thing. You know, Bridge of Spies requires a little more from the audience, but it's solid. It's a great movie. Nobody's ever going to list it, I think, as their favorite Spielberg. And I think it's even a little easy for it to get lost because it's so easy to, I think, characterize that decade as like, oh, it's not his strongest decade. And so it, I think it can be glossed over, but it shouldn't be because it's a solid it's a solid film. And I think it's the last solid film for a while. I mean, after that comes out, we've got the BFG, as we mentioned, a film, a big budget film that doesn't find an audience. It doesn't find the reception that Spielberg was accustomed to getting in the 1980s when nothing he did could miss. Another quote-unquote smaller film that came out in 2017, Spielberg recently, I don't know if you saw this, Russ, in, a, in an interview he did with one of the trade outlets, I, I forget which one, was talking about the current state of film distribution, how he thought a lot of filmmakers were thrown under the bus, specifically calling out HBO Max and Warner Brothers, basically taking that entire slate, moving it to streaming. But he didn't completely go against streaming. He brought up a movie like The Post as the sort of film that he would make for streaming at some point in the future. As a filmmaker, he takes a look at a movie like that and says, hey, that movie was never going to be a blockbuster. Maybe it would have made a bigger impact had I put it out on streaming. Those comments, I think, open a door for him to maybe make a movie with a Netflix, with an Apple down the line when he wants to make something that's a little bit more in tune to what we saw in the post, which was fine. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I struggled to come up with another word for it. At worst, uninteresting. Let's call it that. A big part of that, I think, for me is it's, it's a movie that's made in reaction to the Trump presidency, to that 2016 election. Yeah. It's a movie made in the context of the conversations around fake news and in support of the press, which is 
fine. It's just it's a little bit too on the nose for what it's trying to do. I'm not sure I received that message as effectively as I enjoy messages like that on screen. Usually for me, I engage better with films about a social context when you work through genre. Put an alien in there, put a monster in there. I'll have a better time eating the medicine of your message. But when you're a little bit upfront, it's just it's it's really easy to fall into being cheesy or heavy-handed with that. I think the post suffers from that. Or make it a thriller. Three Days of the Condor. You know, there there are a few of those. Or I mean, obviously, the big Washington Post movie that is massively successful that you can look at make all the presidents men. But there's a reason that even for someone like Spielberg, making all the presidents men is not just the easiest thing to do. It's because it's a great movie. But I mean, I think even a movie like Spotlight, you know, works better than The Post does. I think Spotlight's a great movie. So what I will say is that I'm not going to knock it for the fact that it was made as a reaction to the 2016 election and or the fact that it was very much responding to allegations of fake news and attacks on journalistic institutions overall. I think it's kind of great to do that. I would like more big filmmakers and more big movies to be lighter on their feet, to be more immediately reactionary. I don't need every movie to be something that has like this grand timeless quality. I think that there's a lot of power in having a movie that is immediately reactionary and that comes from a gut level reaction that even somebody like Spielberg has like, absolutely go for it. You don't need to spend six years on a thing or two years or whatever, like spend six months on it, do your thing, get that statement out and move on. I wish the post was stronger. Yeah. But there are a lot of aspects about its creation that, you know, I do applaud and that I'd like to see more of. Yeah. I think that's a good way of putting it. And we sort of see a glimpse of what we could potentially see a career direction from Spielberg, but he surprises us once again in 2018 with another big swing on making a big studio picture, a picture that delves into nostalgia, a picture that looks like is going to reconnect with some of those elements from the 1980s that connected with popular audiences in his adaptation of the novel Ready Player One, which takes place in what we would call today the metaverse, which is a very (laughs) contemporary thing. So this is an example of Spielberg taking something that he sort of sees the culture again heading to. And we've said how he's done this in the past with Close Encounters. He's done this with E.T. We went into detail, for example, with how Minority was able to really tap into some of these things happening in American society, where American society was headed. I don't think any of that works in Ready Player One, which to me seems like a Robert Zemeckis picture trying to be a Steven Spielberg picture. Yeah. And let's be clear about the timeline. He actually filmed Ready Player One before the post, did the post while he was in post on Ready Player One. So it's interesting that the release is kind of flopped because of the resources that were required to make one movie versus the other. I think the source material for Ready Player One is lousy. I think Ready Player One as a movie is lousy. You know what? I actually went to read the novel as I was preparing to cover this movie here for Box Office Pro. One of the worst books I've read in my life. I mean, it is just a bad, bad, bad source material. And it's a lot more difficult for me to even understand why he did Ready Player One. Like, it seems derivative. I think he liked the idea of the challenge of it. You know, I think there's a technical challenge there that he didn't surmount. 
but I think maybe it presented an idea that was like, okay, this is, yeah, let's see if we can make this work. I don't think it works. I think it pretty spectacularly doesn't work, in fact. But but hey, it's yeah. a concern. And it's a concern that in many ways, West Side Story is alarming, not in terms of the filmmaking, because again, we opened this podcast by talking about how much we enjoyed a film like West Side Story, how difficult of a production it was going to be to come in and create a companion piece to a flawed film from 1961. He hits all his marks in West Side Story. The audience doesn't follow. With Ready Player One, the movie doesn't work, and the audience is completely uninterested in it. And that's the sort of framework that we have going into the expansion of the Fablements this Thanksgiving weekend. This is a Thanksgiving weekend with a wide expansion of a Steven Spielberg movie that has at its core a white American suburban family. This is something that has always worked for him. We've seen the film perform very well, critically. We've seen the film work very well in its platform release a couple of weeks back. I'm very curious to see what this movie tells us about Steven Spielberg, the filmmaker, and more importantly, what the audience reception is. Because those questions that we've had on Spielberg over the last decade at least we've been able to solve the critical component of it after having seen West Side Story and Side in Relief and saying, okay, the guy still knows how to make a movie very, very well, but we don't know if he can connect with audiences. And I think that's going to be the big, big question with a movie like this one. It's not a huge blockbuster. It's not, it's not Nope, for example. In, in prior years, something like Nope could have been a Spielberg film. I mean, Nope is explicitly a reaction. Nope is explicitly Jordan Peele making or responding to some of the ideas of a Spielberg movie. There's no question. With the, with the exception that instead of the family being white, it's African-American. It's an African-American nuclear family that is dealing with themes while there is an alien around. <laughs> it's a prototype of a Spielberg movie that's Works, I think, in my opinion, because it's a fresh take on it. That's the sort of influence that Spielberg has had. I think there's a huge question mark in how the next decade of Spielberg films are going to play out. Spielberg always has a whole bunch of other stuff on deck, but it, you know, there are things that he develops that are pretty clearly like, oh, this is never going to go anywhere. Like he was interested in it, and it's not going to happen. It's too bad that. Ready Player One, for instance, wasn't one of those. <laughs> it's like, yeah, develop it, do the work, and then maybe get it out of your system and go ahead and do something else. It's Whereas it seems like a lot of times he's he kind of, with the exception of something like West Side Story, which he'd wanted to do forever, and The Fablements, which he'd also wanted to do forever, it seems like he often kind of gets an idea and then it's just like, I'm going to act on it pretty quickly. So it's difficult to say what is going to be next. But yeah, I would love to see if he can make something that connects with audiences in a way that his biggest movies have. And, you know, let's see if he's got one more culture-defining movie in him. Maybe he's got, you know, maybe he's got more than one. It'd be great to see. One of the few filmmakers working today that can get a theatrical film greenlit pretty much regardless of the subject matter or budget. He's got that cachet. That's something that is increasingly rare in today's Hollywood. And it's important to have filmmakers that can go out with a theatrical first experience, like the ones that he brings to audiences. And we'll see how audiences respond after this weekend's wide expansion of The Fablements coming out from Universal Pictures. Russ, thank you so much for joining me in this career look back on Steven Spielberg and his influence in American cinema. Thanks again to you, the audience, for joining us in this uh, long 
holiday weekend <laughs> episode of the Box Office Podcast. Thanks again to our colleague, Sean Robbins, for showing up here in the news part of this episode. The Box Office Podcast will be back again with a new episode next week. This show is produced by the Box Office Company in collaboration with Box Office Pro and Record Edit Podcast. Thanks again for your support and happy Thanksgiving 